We're glad that you're here. We have been studying the book of Romans. Uh, We are studying Romans because it is uh, uh, the book that gives us the heart of the gospel. If you're here today and you're not a believer, maybe you're a seeker or you're like Whitney who came for a long time and and all of a sudden it began to to click as to what the gospel is. Uh, This is a great uh, sermon series to go through uh, because Paul very clearly lays out in, in the book of Romans why it is that Christians believe that not only uh, is Christ the, the only entrance into the kingdom of God, but it's, it's history itself. Now, one other thing to say uh, about the, the book of Romans, it's great theology, but we need to understand that because Paul understood that, that Christ is the way, the truth, the life, and he sets it forth in the book of, uh, of, of Romans, uh, he says at the end of the book, therefore I'm on my way to Spain. In other words, because he's clearly setting forth Christ as the only Savior, uh, it affects his life in such a way that he does something with that. Okay. And so this is not a theological book, but it is a book of mission. Now today, if you'll notice uh, the title there, uh, I hope none of y'all got depressed, because the title is, uh, What is Your Credit Score? And for you young folks, uh, y'all, y'all will learn about that later. But the reason I do this is two reasons. Number one is because actually our text talks about credit. It talks about righteousness being reckoned or credited three times in eight short verses. And it's very important to understand that concept. But but another reason is because we hear about credit a lot now. Credit's cheap. Have you noticed that? I mean, uh, you can get it for like three and a half percent. It's the lowest it's been since apparently uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower. But there's a catch to this credit. Uh, number one is uh, your, your credit record, your credit score had be, better be pretty good, almost perfect. But not only that, but because the banks were burned in the past by making bad loans and eating those bad loans, now you have to bring a whole lot of assets to reduce their risk. And so even though the money's there, it's hard to get to it. But let me tell you what the gospel teaches. Uh, The gospel teaches uh, that there is a credit of righteousness that's for free. It's free to us, okay? It's free to us, but it has cost God, his own son, blood to make us righteous in his son. So it's free, but it costs everything. And not only does God see the risk... Uh, He takes on the risk on our behalf. So let's look at our text and see what we can learn about this credit from God, this credit of righteousness. Is there printed in the bulletin for you? What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. 
Just as David who speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Good news. Let's pray together. Father, we are slow to hear. In fact, Lord, according to your word, we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. It's impossible for us to understand this gospel apart from the great work of your Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ. Father, I pray for those who are here that have never really heard the music of the gospel, that you would once again uh, confront them with this good news that they would hear and believe. And Father, for us who have known you for quite some time and have sinned many, many times in the years that we have known Jesus, that we would once again be assured that our salvation is not our faith, but it's in the object of our faith who is Jesus Christ who has once for all been crucified on our behalf. Help us once again this morning be restored to the joy of our salvation. And so we ask these things in your name and for your sake. Amen. Um, If you're a Presbyterian, you have to go to seminary. And uh, one of the things that you learn in a good Presbyterian seminary, uh, one that's orthodox, one that believes uh, uh, the Bible, is that you learn that uh, by studying Greek and Hebrew and studying church history and studying different writers, you learn that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. And, uh, and, that it, it, it's, and because it is, it's true. And it's true for you today, whether you're a Christian or not. If it's true, if it's God's word, it's true for every generation. It's true for every culture. But also what you learn uh, in seminary is uh, n- not only uh, are we to deliver a message that is true, but you need to understand the context. This is why I like to get together with people one-on-one. I grew, I, there are people who were like Whitney from New York. And there, there are people who grew up in uh, South Georgia like uh, Matt, our youth worker. And there are people who are here who've come from different countries and different cultures. But it's the responsibility of a minister uh, to take these timeless, uh, eternal truths and to apply them to the audience upon which they're hearing. This, this hearing the message, does that make sense? Well, let let me tell you about a seismic way of thinking that's changed since I've been a minister, okay? And uh, and this is not just from Christian writers. Uh, This would be a lot of uh, philosophers who would say this. That really there have kind of been three uh, eras in in space and time in the last uh, 2,000 years um, how we come about knowing anything. One is what they call the pre-modern era, before the Age of Enlightenment, where we believe that God speaks in the West. That's, in the West, we believe that. God is a person. He's spoken through the Word. So we know things by revelation. But about 1780s or so, the Age of Enlightenment began. And there was this movement away from revelation that God is at the center of the universe to where man began to believe that he could reason himself, uh, through reason could understand the world. And so we moved from revelation to reason and scientific method. And therefore, if there were ghosts in a modern mindset, you'd explain away ghosts. You had set up some kind of test or whatever it may be, okay? 
Now, what's really changed in the last 30 years since I have actually been a minister and I've had to relearn how to think about communicating is we shifted from what the, the age of reason to where people today that are, say, under 40 years old are suspicious of anybody that believes in revelation or science. And so everything now is relative. And so what you do, if you're under the age of 40, you have been taught and you swim in this way of thinking, this relative, everything's relative. Even Christians do this. And so what you end up doing, because with the aid of video, the aid of audio, the aid of putting earphones in and not listening or talking to anybody, you create your own reality. And so uh, the last thing, a po- it's called postmodern person. The last person, uh, the person who's a relativist or a person who creates their own reality and lives by experience, not by reason, the last thing they want to hear is uh, words like being reached with Jesus, for Jesus. Because that suggests that you're supposed to be reached to something. Now, for instance, there's some of you who are here that don't really want to be, but you have to be. And, and, and you're already, you're just ready to, click me off, but here I'm just telling you that, 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 that everybody has to deal with a way of how they're looking at the world. And so, but I'm just telling you, people that are under the age of 40, they think in terms of, uh, well, this is what I think, this is what I feel. Hey, if that's good for you, you want to believe that, that's great. You want to believe that Jesus Christ is Son of God? Well, that's great, but I don't have to believe that. Well, you do if he is. If that is reality. And therefore when... And the reason I tell you all this is because, you see, I have got to come to a text that Paul is trying to prove a God word that a lot of people just tune out, and that is this word, righteousness. So you hear the word righteousness, or you say that to somebody, and all of a sudden you just see them getting glazed over. Like, okay, that's kind of a religious word. But, well, okay, we'll remember a couple of weeks ago so I can come back and show where Paul is trying to say that Christianity is nothing new. It was from the beginning and that Abraham was justified because of a righteousness that was imputed to him through faith. Remember I gave you a, a, a modern word, term, definition of righteousness. Okay, so let's get it out of the first century. And let's bring it all the way up to, uh, to postmodern man. And if you remember, I gave Tim Keller the credit for how he defines righteousness. Uh, Tim Keller is a, is a great preacher for the secular mind in, in downtown New York and has thousands of people coming. He's like the next C.S. Lewis. But here's what he says about righteousness. I want to give you a definition for it. And then I only have two points because uh, I have to uh, install John as the associate pastor and so y'all won't walk out on me, okay, before he gets installed. You can't do that. So here's what he says about righteousness. He says, righteousness is a validating performance record which opens doors. How about that? It is a validating performance record which opens doors. So here's how this works for the modern man. Hey, if you want to get in the University of Georgia... You go get your academic records, and you show your performance, and apparently you have to have like a 1,200-something on your SAT. So if you're, it used to be if you went to Georgia, it was like, okay. But now it's like, whoa, you're pretty smart. Because you've, you've been validated. And they let you into the school, even though we live in an egalitarian culture that says everybody's equal and the same, but, but, but we're only going to take the 1,275. 
So, so there's this validation. It opens the doors. Uh, if you want a job, you go you get it and take your resume. And, uh, and your resume determines whether you are acceptable. It is, your ex- is the reason that we should accept you. So the fact of the matter is, whether you're a religious person or not, you are having to perform. That's why a lot of people hate Christianity. Because it says you can't do it. But this is why so many people think that, that uh, religion is about performance. A lot of you are you're deceived this morning. And, uh, and you think, that oh, well, the pastor, he must really be a good person. Or the elders, aren't they wonderful people? Well, I know some of these guys. <laughs> but, but that's the way we think, right? So I have to perform. I have to perform. And I, I'm sorry to say that many of you who are either professing Christians or have missed the gospel somewhere, you've gone right back into that, and therefore you're depressed, you're discouraged. You're just ready to throw out because you're sick of either being a hypocrite or a loser. Right? But you see, it's just like John said, that when you're united to Christ, uh, now when John, it was David, I'll give you David credit, where you, you're, you're justified by faith, but you're also sanctified, you change by faith in this one who's raised, it's not by effort. It's by Christ at work in you through faith. Now why do I say all that? Because I only have two quick points to show from our text. Because, you see, you need to be validated before God. You must bring your performance record or someone else's. Now, if you're not a Christian, you can't just wish away a just God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You just can't wish them away. You go, ah, I don't really believe that. Well, you can go ahead and not believe that. But according to the Bible, in true history, you're part of redemptive history, Genesis and Revelation. You're going to have to stand uh, before God and, and give a reason He should let you in. Because you see, because God is holy and righteous and just and good, He must judge according to the records. You do that to other people, don't you? Don't you have a standard for people and if they don't live up to that standard, you get mad at them? Don't you do that? We do it all the time. But let me tell you, God is not like us who goes all over the place. His wrath is predictable. His justice is predictable. And therefore, Paul is trying to say the whole world is guilty and the purpose of the law is not to make you better. It is to drive you to a foreign righteousness that comes from heaven. And it comes in Christ. And so... Paul has to prove that Christianity is nothing new, that it's old, and he does it, first off, by showing two Old Testament characters, doesn't he? He says, so what shall we say about Abraham? This is uh, point one. Abraham and David. Okay, he proves, proves it from Abraham and David. So what shall we say about Abraham and David? Do they have any reason to boast? Now, John, last week you preached on... Uh, Followed up the sermon, I said, but now there's a righteousness from God which is through faith. And then, then you preached on that text that says, well, then where's boasting? Anybody here that's a Christian going to boast in your righteousness? Why, wow, you know what? I'm a much better Christian than John Larson. I can guarantee you that. Uh, y'all have heard me many times say that it went, on my post on my, my, on my webpage, it has religion, and I put turtle on a fence post. 
Now, the reason I put it there, that's the gospel. If you, if you, I used to do some farming, and uh, we used to love to take little snapping tur- turtles and stick them on top of a fence post. And so when somebody else came by to see the turtle up there on the fence post, they figure he didn't get up there by himself. So that's the gospel. You don't, you don't by your own efforts, kind of start crawling up the, the, and meet God halfway somewhere. If you're, if you're a believer today, it is, Whitney, is because the Holy Spirit opened your eyes. Did he have to open your eyes? No. Is he obligated to open your eyes? No, he was not, was he, Whitney? But you know what? Here God comes, like me, with a turtle, except you're not a turtle. You're much nicer, prettier than a turtle. But, <laughs> but not really. Because, you see, God slaps us up there by his grace. And, 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 and this is what Paul is trying to prove. He says, so, well, let's talk about Abraham, you Jews. You look to Abraham and say, wow, we're God's people. We're culturally better than all those other people. Have you ever done that? Oh, we're Southerners. Whitney's from New York. We love you. And, uh, but we, we do that, don't we? Oh, well, they're from, like my old aunt used to say, uh, wow, they're from up north, right? So why do they want to live down here? We all do that. You see, but, but you see, God in his grace has set us up on that fence post. Completely. And he proves that with Abraham. You Jews, you boast in being Jews. You boast that Abraham's your father. And he says, well, what shall we say about Abraham? Shall Abraham boast? And what is his response? He says, well, he can boast, but not before God. Why? Because he has no righteousness. And so Paul's very clear that Abraham was the, the friend of God, not because of his performance before God, but because he chose Abraham. Friends, Abraham was not. I don't know what the Jews missed about this. Remember when God called him to go to Canaan? That was awesome. Okay, you did that. But then he comes to Canaan, and remember, God in his providence sends a drought. And there's a famine in the land. And there is no record of Abraham saying, God, would you please uh, meet our needs? You got us here, so would you bring some rain here? You know, the next thing you find him is in Egypt. And anytime you see that in the scripture, it means you're going after the world. You're, not, you're no longer trusting in this God. You're trusting uh, in, in man and what man provides. And so there he is in Egypt, and then he tries to give his wife away because the Pharaoh uh, was interested in Sarah. But you see, God's, Abraham's relationship was not with God based on anything that he did. And I'm telling you, if you read the rabbinical uh, writings, they believe that Abraham was perfect. And so we're children of Abraham as we ourselves work our ways in God's favor. No. It is not performance, friends. Listen, if you're a Christian and you're depressed or you're discouraged, I don't know all the reasons. Things are complex. But could it possibly be that you've forgotten the gospel, that God adopted you. He chose you. Now, at the same time, not only does Paul say that Abraham clearly was not justified by works, that's what the text says, but Paul's trying to say that, that to prove that Christianity is not something new, that, that, that it's old, you need to see the proof text that he gives in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, when he says, Abraham believed God, and therefore it was 
credited, reckoned into his bank account as righteousness. Now, let me tell you, as Christians, you've got to get this square in your head too because a lot of people who are evangelical people, and particularly our brothers and sisters that I love deeply out of the Pentecostal background, they will read that verse and it will be murder if you interpret it this way. And they'll say, oh, Abraham was not justified by works. We all believe that. I don't care if you're Pentecostal, Evangelical Presbyterian, Evangelical Baptist, or you're Evangelical. We all believe it's not by works that you're justified. But you know what? That verse gets interpreted as that Abraham was justified because of his faith. Because Abraham believed God, therefore it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And what is the end result for many of you who are in this congregation? You think that your faith is not in Christ, but in whether you really believe it or not. You understand the difference? So you try to put your faith in your faith. It's called, theologians call it a fideism, and it's rampant in this room, I guarantee you. And therefore, you even feel worse about yourself. Because, you know, at least worse you can go, hey, at least I didn't steal today. But you understand when you go, oh, no, 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 no. It's your real, really what God's looking for is your faith. And therefore, we go, well, you know what? I wouldn't be in this situation if I had better faith. I wouldn't be in this situation if I really believed God. I wouldn't be sick if I really had faith. And friends, I am here to tell you that that is not what this text teaches. And that's, I, I'm, I'm, I believe that that's why some of you are very unhappy now, let me tell you another reason it can't be that Abraham was justified because he had faith. Because you can't have faith. Something has to be reckoned as righteousness, and it's not faith. It is the object of that faith. And I can show you in the Greek very clearly here uh, that uh, when you put uh, uh, faith with the uh, with dia through or by means of with the genitive, I mean with the dative, it would mean... You're justified because of your faith. But it's in the accusative, which means that you're justified by the instrument of faith. Do you understand the difference? And what is the, what is the object of your faith? Your object of the, your faith is the righteousness of Christ. You, and, and you see, and what is reckoned, and what Abraham believed, is that one day God would reckon Christ's righteousness to him. And so, Paul's saying, listen, the gospel's always been there. Abraham looked forward to that day when Christ would be crucified on his behalf. Let me put it another way. You know, have you ever wondered how Old Testament saints were saved? I mean, you got Jesus comes to, you know, thousands of years after Abraham. So how were they converted? The way they were converted was the same way New Testament saints are converted, and that is this. God, before the foundations of, of the world, has chosen a people, undeserving people, whether it was Noah or Adam, or Abraham, or Moses, or Martin Luther, or John Calvin, or John Wesley, or you this morning, and he's yanked off in space and time our sins and placed it upon Christ. Our sin was credited to his account, and he became bankrupt on our behalf and experienced the curse and wrath of God. Why? Because God is holy, righteous, justice, just, and good. And what do we get in exchange for that? If, well, 
perfect obedience, 33 years. He loved God with all his heart, soul, and mind. Never, never sinned, right? Loved everybody, loved his neighbor, loved God. And in exchange for that, because God is righteous, that must be rewarded. And it is credited into Christ's account. I mean, into your account. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, friends, I'm telling you, no other religion teaches this. But this is the gospel. This is the good news. And so if you think that you are to mingle the work of Christ with your faith or with your righteousness or with your works, I'm telling you, you're so far from the kingdom of God, you you do not understand. And then, of course, Paul not only points to, 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 to Abraham, he points to David. Now, the Jews knew that David wasn't so good. Murder, adulterer, screwed up everything. And then he had a son, Solomon. And if you read about Solomon, oh, what a wise guy. Well, you know what? He was goofy too. I mean, he had bunches and bunches of wives. And he had all this wisdom. What did he do with that wisdom? He did it for himself. So David says this, and Paul quotes the Psalm 32. Blessed is the man, and David understood this, whose sin is not laid to his account. Almost true, but let me ask you this. Are you blessed today? Do you walk in that freedom that, listen, you're free? 2,000 years ago, all my sin was imputed to Christ. What sins? Well, those, I'm not dead yet. I think that I'll probably sin between now and the time I die, unless I die here right now saying that. Uh, well, all those sins, past, present, future, are laid at the feet of Christ. And I'll tell you what, that is freedom. You're in. You're free. You're adopted. And so where's their boasting? Oh, well, there is none. David understood that. He cast himself upon the mercy of God, you see. One last thing. So, so, so the first point is just that Paul's saying, hey, listen, this is nothing new. This has always been the gospel. If it was new 2,000 years ago, then it's not true. But if it's all linked together, it's true, and it's true for you. What's the last thing? Well, the second point is simply this. What was the gospel that they heard? What was the gospel that David and, uh, David and Abraham heard? Well, it's in verse 4. Now listen to this. Look at this verse. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies who? Can anybody tell me what that text says? Who's God justified? What does it say? Who does God justify? What does that text say? The ungodly. Okay, now if you're ungodly, you've got a lot of hope. But if you're a moralist or you're a person who thinks that, you know what, this is ridiculous, then you know what, the gospel's not for you. It's for the ungodly. Now let me tell you the difference between a religious Christian and a real Christian who's born again the way Whitney's been born again and the way many of you have been born again. A religious Christian is someone who thinks that, that, uh, that people owe them because they've been righteous people. And man, the last thing you want to be married to is a... Uh, self-righteous Christian who's not born again. Why? Because you can never live up to their debt. The debt that you've incurred against them. You de- I demand more from you and I demand more from you. Religious people are always that way. Have you noticed that about religious people? Now a lot of you that aren't Christians, you think real Christians are the religious people. But they're the ones that are always angry. Why? Because not only do you owe them, but God owes them as well. 
And I can't believe God would let that happen in my life. I deserve a better life than that. No, you do not. You deserve the wrath and curse of God. Much less your bank account or your spouse that you're having a hard time getting along with or your parents who you think are terrible parents. You see, Christ didn't die for righteous people. He says that. I didn't come for the. If you're healthy, this means nothing to you. But here's who this is for, for, for this morning. If you're an ungodly person, if you're one who has no hope, and you're willing to admit that your life is so in shambles because of your own sin, then Christ died for you if you look to him as your only hope. It's free. Now, it will cost you your life because, uh, Whitney, you, you entered into the kingdom of God. Now, you, you, know, you, you know Jesus, but it's no longer out of obligation. It's out of love for what Christ is doing. Let me conclude. Um, story I heard by a guy named Wilson Benton. This happened in 1940. Last, uh, last illustration, we'll come to Lord's Supper. Said it changed his life. Wilson Benson, a preacher, he's about 70 years old now. But this happened in the 1940s. Because the question is, well, hey, let's just sin that grace might abound. I mean, if God's, Jesus paid for all my sin, let me, Whitney, you can just go out there and do what you want to do. No, 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 no. We're going to get that in chapter 6, okay? I got two more chapters. But understand this that it's free grace. And uh, he tells a story about uh, how he grew up in a delta. And uh, his mama was going to take him to church. And it was in the summertime. And back in the summertime, everybody wore their whites because it was cooler. Their cotton, right? And so he disobeyed his mother. His mother told him, you know, you need to stay back in your room until it's time to go to church. He takes off and he goes and he gets into a, uh, he goes out in the back and he falls into a ditch. And he's just got, <laughs> he got mud all over his nice little white fit, outfit. And so he knows he's in trouble. And so he starts crying and he starts running back toward the house. And he said, here comes my mama. And she's in this beautiful white dress, cotton dress. And she, I run to her and rather than going, whoa, whoa, don't, not just dry clean that like I used to do with my kids. You got a snotty nose there, don't, don't touch me. Um, she kneels down in the mud and embraces him. And gets all that mud all over herself. Didn't have time. Had time to clean him up. Didn't have time to clean herself up. And so you know what she does? She did? Uh, she got him dressed and they went to church. And she went to church covered in mud in the Delta of Mississippi. And he said, for right then, right then I understood the gospel. Because she took upon herself, on her dress, my stain, and I go to church clothed in white. That's the gospel. And it's all free. Let's pray together.